Hi, and welcome to the Chainsaw Carving Podcast. In this episode, we get to talk to Chainsaw Carver Jeff May, all the way from Idaho. Let's go ahead and bring Jeff on. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Molly. How are things out in, you're in Idaho, right? Yeah, that's great. It's really good. Our, but I got to tell you, our our town is growing at leaps and bounds. Uh, apparently, we are supposedly the number one place to move in the country, which has really been, uh, I mean, I can't say that I'm not benefiting from it as an artist, but it's, it's definitely been challenging to, to see our town grow so quickly. Yeah, yeah, there's good and bad to that. I actually know somebody that just moved out there. Oh, yeah? <laughs> From Minnesota. No way. Yeah. That's cool. Cool. Okay, so I saw you've started a podcast, too. Is it called A Sculpted Life Podcast? Yeah, yeah. So what's yeah. the focus of that show? Well, you know, it's funny because I, I kind of consider myself a lifelong learner and I just, I, I've most everything that I've learned in life has just been from trial and error and, you know, observing and watching others. And, you know, having been an artist myself for the past 20 some years, I kind of feel like, you know, I've, I've experienced enough that I know some of the challenges that artists go through and uh, both in promoting themselves and just, uh, just some of the subtle nuances of, uh, artist life. And I don't know, I just kind of felt like inspired to uh, share the stories of different artists. So it's really not geared towards, um, even though it would seem as though we geared towards sculptors, uh, a sculpted life really kind of came out of this whole idea that we're constantly being molded and shaped by, you know, people and experiences and and the things that we encounter in life. And so a sculpted life kind of grew out of that you know i i feel like artists are uniquely designed to take those experiences and then sort of translate them into you know their particular art form and i'm just like incredibly intrigued by that whole process so a sculpted life is just about sharing the creative pursuits of artists of all types and you know in all locations across the globe so it's it's a it's a big challenge i guess you'd say uh to um, take on, you know, a podcast that has such a wide, um, you know, interest level, I guess it's not, you know, it's not like geared towards one medium or, or something specific. So we'll have to just see how it goes, but, uh, I really am enjoying it. And we've had, uh, five podcasts now and I'm, I'm shooting for once a week. That might be a little ambitious, but, uh, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, cool. I know I'm always really curious about how different artists approach like the artistic process. So I know that'd be really cool to listen to. Um, and I also I've looked for a lot of podcasts related to art and there aren't very many, or at least the last time I checked. Yeah, you know, I don't I don't know exactly how many there are either. Um, but I didn't I haven't ever found any that are that are really broad. There's there's some that are geared towards um, certain things. Uh, you know, I, I particularly like to listen to people just talk about talk about their work and talk about their studio space. And, you know, while I'm working myself, I just feel like I have somebody kind of there with me, you know, in the studio and and working alongside me. And so it's it's just really cool. I mean, you'd be amazed at the number of things that you can learn from other artists who are working in completely different mediums that translate and, and, you know, add to your own ability to kind of like modify those concepts and, and add them to your own, you know, your own art or your own art business, whatever that might be. Right. Yeah. No, that's cool. Yeah. It's been fun. Okay. I saw, or we actually just talked about this. So you're carving out of Idaho. Mm -hmm. I was just curious, you know, I always want to know at different parts of the country, like what types of trees are available to you and how do you get them? Yeah, I mean, we've got a ton of different kinds of trees. I think primarily I carve in pine, um, but we have, uh, you know, there's red fir, there's tamarack, there's uh, cedar. Um, in place, it's not terribly difficult to get a hold of um, Alaskan yellow cedar, uh, but it's not really anything native to our particular area. Here, here in Idaho, we have mostly a ponderosa pine is what I use and 
you know, it's a lot of the mills here in our area are geared towards uh, processing wood that's like 26 inches in diameter or under. And oftentimes they won't even accept urban wood because of the danger of metal being in it. They've, uh, they've just re-geared all of the mills here to be super high production and they just don't even fuss with it. So any of the tree companies that are taking out urban wood, uh, they just don't even know what to do with pine that's over 26. It's just nobody wants it for firewood, A, because nobody likes to process big firewood. Uh, it's a lot of work to split, you know, around that's 30 plus inches. Yeah. And uh, so it's just kind of been a, a good resource for me. A lot of the smaller tree companies around here don't have heavy equipment and I have a truck with a crane on it. And so we've just, you know, over time, we've worked out a lot of different partnerships with tree companies to just, you know, help one another. And uh, I'll get a text, a picture text and say, hey, Jeff, are you into this or not? And, you know, if I can slip away, I'll, I'll go down and uh, sometimes it's most of the time it's already kind of in like a nine or 10 foot section and I'll just, uh, lift it into the truck and have it back in the studio. So it's been uh, pretty, pretty easy for me to get, uh, wood here. Uh, yeah. Cool. Um, so I, I'm just, this is like totally a personal curiosity, but I heard you mention Tamarack. What is that like to carve? Um, I've only carved tamarack probably like five times. It's it's a it's a harder wood. Um, it yeah. do, it can split and check um, a little bit. Very 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 similar characteristically as as red fir or Douglas fir. Okay. Um, yeah, it's um, you know I've never I've never tried to like kiln dry and and um, do like a glue lamb type of of sculpture with it. Um, but it's a very strong wood and. You know, uh, tamarack's one of those, uh, they, the needles get yellow. It's one of the only um, conifers that drops its needles. So it's it's a really beautiful tree. It's one of my favorites. Yeah, when I heard you mention it, we we have tamaracks here. They don't get very big in Minnesota, mm. but I'm always, I love them too because of that, because of how yellow they get. So when you said it, I was like, oh, I've never even thought about carving tamarack. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they call it larch too. Um, larch or tamarack is kind of the same thing. I don't know what you guys call yours mostly back there. Yeah. We call them tamarack. Tamarack. Okay. Yeah. 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 We've got about, I would say probably half a dozen, maybe 10 here on, on our own property. Um, and probably um, three to four of them. Actually, we probably have more than that then. Cause anyway, we've got three or four that we've planted and uh, they're finally starting to get you know, 15 to 25 feet tall now. And they're starting to look like, you know, the tree that you really admire. Cool. Yeah. Okay. And you kind of mentioned this when you answered about the trees, but I, I just saw that you have like an amazing truck set up. Is there, is there anything else you can tell us about it? Oh man, I, I can't speak highly enough about my truck. It's, it's uh it was a little bit of a, process to get it set up because, you know, as you probably know, anything, well, you know, an F-350, 450, F-550, they're all super spendy rigs. Mm -hmm. And so I spent a lot of time online looking for a truck that I could um, both afford that was configured the way that I needed it to. And um, I wanted a four-wheel drive because, you know, you can get stuck in, in flat ground if it's icy. And so uh, I wanted four wheel drive. I wanted an extra cab. Uh, I really wanted a long wheelbase, but that was a tough, uh, tall order because I also wanted it to be an automatic. And so I, I ended up calling or uh, going down, getting flown down to uh, Southern California to take a look at this truck. And I got there and there was like quarter inch rust flakes on the frame rails. And I was like, I am, I can't buy this truck. And the guy was so upset with me. I mean, he, he literally was like trying to make, he was trying to give me this BS about the truck being, you know, that I was bound, uh, by verbal agreement to, to purchase it. And I had to hitchhike out of there because, uh, he was just getting super aggro with me and I was like, I'm out of here. And so I hiked to uh, a Starbucks, got on my computer and talked to this, uh, sales guy in, Denver, Colorado. And he's like, well, I'll pay for your plane ticket, come out and grab this truck. And so I, it was so crazy. The guy at Starbucks like overheard our conversation. He's like, oh, I'll give you a ride to the bus station and then bus station to the airport. And I was like, 
this whole ordeal, you know, and uh, I flew to Denver and ended up buying a truck that was literally like two months before that was purchased at an auction, like two miles away from where this guy made me hitchhike out of. It was hilarious. (laughs) And uh, so I drove that truck back to Idaho and that began the refit. Um, It was an old uh, PG&E truck out of California and they always send their trucks out. Uh, they, They have this proprietary blue that they don't like seeing on the road, I guess. And so they just shoot this cheap white paint over the top of it before they send it to auction. So the truck needed to be painted and, um, and it was everything I wanted except for the wheelbase. And so we had to cut the frame and extend the wheelbase. Uh, so the truck is used. The crane is a Palfinger knuckle boom crane that's also used. And then we built a custom bed and modified the truck to accommodate the whole thing. So its lifting capacity is just under 3,000 pounds. Although, um, you know, I've worked out ways that I can lift m- more than that, just not deadlift, you know, like I have to just lift one end of the log and get underneath it and inch it into the truck. And Sure. But um, it's the backbone of my business, to be honest. Uh, um, after I purchased the truck, um, I, I essentially don't do any on-site carving anymore. I, I probably do maybe two jobs a year. Uh, I'll, I'll go to the customer's place. Uh, first things we talk about on the phone is, is budget and whether it's accessible by truck. And that, that's kind of like the very beginning premise of whether or not I take a job, at least an on-site one. Yeah. And then I'll, I'll go and, uh, I hook my crane up and, uh, cut it free and uh, haul it back to the studio and I, I mark the butts according to customer jobs and then it sort of sits uh, in a shaded area of our property until the project starts but you know I I just I don't even know what I'd do without it because like if you think about the number of touch points you have with a log like you know you gotta whether it's a customer's piece of wood or somebody's giving you a piece of wood you've got to go pick it up you've got to unload it and then once the bark starts to pop, which is basically just separating from the cambium, you want to get it off. So that you got to debark it, then you got to redeck it, and then you got to put it in your you know carving area and stage it for for sculpting. And then a, a couple, two or three more times, moving it for different processes within the carving and and installation. So there's just there's a ton of time uh, wrapped up in moving heavy logs and if you don't have the right equipment, I don't, I don't even know. It's just, it's a huge time suck. And, and I use it for some really silly stuff too. Like I've, I've hung an umbrella, uh, to, to give me shade when I'm carving mm-hmm. a piece, you know, of wood out in the open. Uh, you know, I've swung my kids on it. I've gotten myself unstuck out of a, a ditch once with it and, uh, changed a trailer tire when I lifting up the side of my trailer. Um, lawnmowers, ATVs, you name it. It's, it's just a a really handy, uh, piece of equipment to have. And I think probably all in all, I can't really remember to be honest, but I probably have, I probably had 35, maybe 38,000 tied up in the truck between all the equipment and the build, which isn't, isn't too bad, but um, no, new trucks are new trucks are so expensive. Yeah, this one's a ninety nine. Yeah, it's an older truck, and it it you know it it bounces and shakes like crazy. Is you know the suspension's just super stiff. Uh, yeah. But you know, I, I it's it honestly like I don't have that many miles on it. It's it's a great truck because I I primarily just the only time I leave with it is when, um you know, I'm doing a bid or picking up wood, uh, or, or around the property here, just moving things around. Cause I do also keep it, uh, sort of in far in front of my carving area so that all my chips and chunks can go directly in the bed. So I don't have to pick them up twice. And then they just get put into a, a burn pile out in my pasture. So. Sure. I know when I, when I saw the truck, I was like, that's incredible. That would be amazing. <laughs> yeah. I know. I, I, I save my back. Like now I just use it for things like, uh, you know, pieces of wood that, oh, I mean, I don't like, you know, stand up like 12 inch size pieces, but you know, you've got like a 26 inch log, which you're like, oh, I could bend over and squat this up, you know, but I'm like, I think I'll use the crane. Right. 
Yeah. So um, I'm in this for the long haul. You know, I've, I've been doing it for a long time and I, I foresee myself doing this the rest of my life. And so I wanted to invest in a piece of equipment that would help me do that. And it certainly has. So it, it is expensive to maintain. There's lots of, you know, we've had to change transmissions, uh, replace hydraulic lines. And, you know, you've got to stay on top of lubricating the boom and all that kind of stuff. It's but it but it's still the, the trade off is is worth it for sure. It's yeah. been a good investment. Yeah. And that was cool how you said, so you, like, if you're, if you do an on-site, did you say you bring the tree back to carve it to your own shop? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's really, I mean, you eliminate all the drive time for uh, going back and forth. So if you're doing a sculpture that's, you know, complex where you're going to be there for, you know, four, five days or more, then, you know, you don't have that to and from, because I, I have a radius probably within like, I don't want to say a hundred miles of where I live. It was the majority of the work that I do. And so, um, you know, you don't have any of the, you know, going back and forth, you don't have hotel and fuel and wear and tear. So I, I try my best to have a conversation with people over the phone to the point where I only have to go there twice. So I might, you know, try to really figure out whether or not they're going to go forward with the project before I even show up. And that's done through conversations and pictures and emails. And then that way, when I go to their house and kind of verify everything, I'm actually ready to take the log right then and there. And then I can take it with me. Um, When I bring it back, like, you know, cut the stump flat according to the height that we want it. And then I treat the stump at the ground level with a product called copper green. And it's just like a, a rot preservative, something similar to what you might put on a fence post. And mm-hmm. and then that way, that's kind of, you know, uh, preserved right at the ground level where you're going to have the most potential for rot. And then when I bring it back, I, I put these uh, plastic shims, which is really just heavy wall schedule 80 um, conduit, electrical conduit. And I have like four of those I put under this. So there's a, an air gap and you don't have wood to wood contact. And that creates a little airspace um, for for the sculpture to be protected, and then it's timber screwed down to the stump. Yeah, That's and then cool. and then sometimes you know, like you know, four or five years down the road, if someone doesn't maintain it properly and they're a snowbird, they're like, "Hey, could you do a little refit over the winter?" I'm like, "Yeah, no problem. Go down there, lift it right off, take it back to the studio, do a quick refit, and sometimes I'll store it for them uh, until they return, or sometimes I'll just put it back on my own." But it's uh, actually do a fair amount of of that kind of stuff. I I want to keep the people that have my sculptures and own them um, happy, and so uh, I try to package each of the the kind of refit jobs um, in in one day. So if I think I can pull off you know three in in a day, uh, I'll go around, and some of it's just applying a fresh coat of finish on it, and sometimes it needs a little bit of love. Uh, repairing some some cracks and things like that but uh, I I've I've uh yeah it's worked out pretty good and and it to be honest it's I mean it's it's a pretty good day rate in terms of your your time um, if you if you save them and package them together in in one fellow swoop so you don't kind of feel like you're sacrificing your you know sculpting time to do repairs and stuff right well I really like that because I I hate doing on sites mainly because, you know, you're in an unfamiliar place and maybe you're out in the hot sun where at your place mm-hmm. you'd have cover or I'm always telling people I can do a better job if I work on it, you know, at my shop. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, so I like that idea of convincing people that it is better, it is better to preserve it and everything too, if you cut it off and, and bring it back. Without a doubt. I mean, I, I can't tell you the, I mean, there's, there's two things that have really changed over the years that have made me just enjoy doing my work that much more. And well, actually I could say three. So the crane, uh, just having done it in this area for such a long time, I don't really have to chase work anymore. Most of it's, you know, incoming and I work from the studio with a, anywhere from a three to six month, um, wait list and um and just the shop like the working space being able to work from home where all my tools are are already set up there's no putting them away at night it's just they're they're out and ready to use i could literally just blow everything off after you know cleaning up from the day and and uh, about 300 steps back to my house 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's really great. That actually kind of goes into my next question. So I was going to ask you, you had a shop fire, right? And then as a result, you were able to build like kind of um, your ideal shop. So what, what makes up an ideal shop? What were things that you had to have? Yeah. I mean, that was, that was a, that was a, that was a challenging period of time. Um, there was lots of things that, that, uh, I wanted to implement into the very first studio, which was um, the interior part of that studio was 24 by 30. So it was just, you know, a little bit bigger than your average size garage. And it was a tall building. And so I had gone in and, and made like all kinds of uh, like loft space and, you know, things like that, that uh, trying to maximize the space that I did have. I ended up actually falling out of the the loft when I was making it and I broke my left foot and sprained my right foot really oh. bad and ended up being down for like 11 weeks. So when when the when the studio burned down and we were kind of just trying to decide, you know, what the next step was, I really I really wanted to to implement some of these ideas that I had had for a long time. And it was tough because financially we had to really kind of assess, you know, how to pull it off because here I was going to be virtually somewhat, somewhat unemployed, bringing in very little income for, you know, uh, I don't know, eight to 12 months, you know? Um, and so that was, that was a little tricky, but I just sat down and I made a list and, and this kind of is along side my philosophy for everything that I do, I, I really just said, what are the things that take my time? Like I just sort of walked through my entire workflow, uh, both in the things that I've done for years and also in the things that I wanted to do into the future and just asked myself what kinds of things I could implement that would save me time in my day and my, my workflow. Um, when one of them was uh, getting rid of the wood heat. Uh, we had had wood heat in the previous studio. And, you know, that involves obviously chopping firewood, but also storing wood and then tending fires. But also like if you have something that's drying, you know, it's, you've got to keep that fire going. And, and I don't know if you use wood heat or not, but wood heat's very difficult to, to regulate. You're either like hot or you're cold. You're never kind of right there in the middle. Right. So uh, we fortunately, as far as we live out in the sticks, we do actually have uh, natural gas. So we decided to go ahead and put in a natural gas furnace in the new place. And that has been a huge time saver and so convenient and efficient. Um, so that was one thing that we, we, um, we put in. Uh, the new studio is, is 40 by 82 overall, and that's just from wing to wing. Um, I built a... Uh, a parking space for my truck because in the winter time when it's snowing, if snow gets um, jammed up inside of the crane area, it is like you almost have to like put a tarp over it and blow heat in there to melt it out of there. It's just really a pain. Uh, and so I got really tired of that. And that was the thing that took my time. And so, you know, I said, okay, I want a place to park my truck, which inevitably has other benefits as well. Like if you have something that's in the back of your truck, you know, a, a sculpture or whatever, and you don't want the weather to get on it, you can just, you know, back right in the, with, with the sculpture in the back or yeah. whatever else. Uh, so uh, parking for my truck was, was important to me. It's not that big of a deal for, for most people, but it was important to me. The wood heat, uh, my carving bay is, is, um, is 12 by 30 and it's, it's largely not any, it's definitely not any bigger than my, my previous carving space. I like that working area, uh, mainly because I built a, a tool carriage that's sort of, um, it's, it's kind of like a box or a frame. I'm not sure if I've posted pictures on online. I know I've posted them on Facebook before, but it's a frame that holds all my power tools and it is mounted on a barn door track. So that goes from one end of the lean to, to the other. So I can go from working with my power tools to my chainsaw and I can move my whole tool set out of the way. And the electrical cords aren't at my feet and, you know, I'm not tripping over different things. It's just super organized. And so that's the, the whole premise of that design is that, that tool carriage. So it's 12 by 30, uh, one improvement, 
the largest improvement there was to make the the ceiling in that space um, 16 feet tall. And the reason for that is, is when I'm backing in that space with a, a large log, but by the time I have my crane and the rigging and the log, it, it's pretty high. And so mm-hmm. I can, you know, sling up a, a log and uh, about a nine, may, maybe a 10 foot log and, and, and be pr- plenty of room for me to work with the crane along the ceiling. And so, uh, and I also added some really good lighting so I can actually carve at night if I wish. And cause around here it gets dark in the wintertime around three 30, wow, uh, which is pretty, yeah. pretty early in the day. Yeah. So, I mean, it's on, the lights are on every day. Um, I don't, uh, just cause it's only open on one end. Uh, but I put a, a shade cloth on, on the, on the sunny side in the summer because, some in the afternoon when you're looking at a sculpture, it can look kind of backlit. So I've got it set up, you know, I mean, like I said, I work from home, um, 95% of the time. And so it's everything I need is, is right there. But, uh, I've got uh, a paint booth now where I can go in and do all my messy stuff with smaller sculptures. The bigger ones, I still finish outside. Um, and then I bring them inside the, the studio to, put the final coat on. And of course, having the, the heat allows me to dry the sculpture. Um, I could just, you know, push a button and hold the temperature right at 62 or whatever, and just leave it. And I've uh, got fans on the ceilings to kind of keep air moving around. But uh, I mean, I could go on and on. It really is. It's, it's phenomenal. I've got an office and a bathroom and a shower. I've got um, power tools. Like before I had power tools that were all on like carts you know, like you had to move something out of the way and plug in one tool at a time. And so when I replaced all that stuff, I went to uh, Grizzly Tools and we ended up uh, going to one of their tent sales over in Bellingham and came home with, you know, basically everything that I would need in one fellow swoop. And everything has dust collection and power and it's set up. So it makes more sense. So if you're doing any of the woodworking kinds of things, monetarily speaking, it just it's, it's a way better setup because, you know, you're not wasting time, um, you know, moving tools around, everything's ready to use and you can just use one tool and go from one to the other. And, um, there's lots of little things that I've, you know, small things that I've put into the studio that I, um, that, you know, to, to help me in my different things. Like I put uh, receiver hitches in the floor, uh, flush with the concrete so I can drop components down into the concrete. And they can support my artwork. Like I've done a huge uh, carved relief panel and I, I built a jig to slide down in the concrete and hold that panel. And so uh, I've got a little bit of metalworking tools, um, not nearly as much as I had before, but um, I like to fabricate my own, you know, bases for some of my sculptures. And um, before the fire, I was on track to kind of incorporate a little bit more metal and wood together in my sculptures. And so it's, um, it's taken me, it's taken me a while longer to kind of reacquire the tools that I, um, had to kind of get back to doing that again. I still got, I don't know, uh, three or four kind of major tools that I want to purchase before kind of revisiting that whole thing. So that set me back a little bit, but, uh, I mean, I'm, I was just super blessed and I can't, I can't be happier with the shop. That's cool. I'm having, I'm having shop envy. <laughs> I would too. I mean, like seriously, I, I feel, I feel like, I don't know. It's just, I feel like I've, I don't know. So blessed. It's, it's really a, a great space. Um, uh, we've had a couple uh, parties out here. Um, some related to, to art and sculpting. And uh, we had an open house when we first, completed the studio we probably had like 110 people out here and it was just super cool we have another studio tour coming up that's part of our community in um, august of this year and so it's a really it, it you know that's that's the other thing like when when i made this list i was like well i want people to be able to come out here and feel like we could have these kind of events and um, it is it's one of those places where you know you really like to invite people to come out and they love to see the space and um, you know everybody likes to see the the areas that creators are making the work that they're making it's part of the the storytelling and 
it's uh it's been really great yeah cool and i was actually going to ask you later so maybe i'll ask you now because you mentioned it um i saw that you do projects that incorporate metal and wood together like i saw you did maybe metal stars on a flag piece Mm -hmm. um a metal bench base um tell us more about how you combine metal and wood or, or what are some of the tools that you need to get again to do that well um I had a uh, an air hammer, which is sort of like if you're familiar with a planishing hammer. The I actually did build the frame, but I'm still lacking the actual hammers. There's a there's a guy who uh, makes these hammers, and they're different uh, percussion rates and different weights. And then, of course, you use a different shaped um, anvil and um, hammer to get different effects. So, like if you want to put in a, a curve or a or a seam or a texture into metal. And, you know, you're essentially are, are hand holding the metal and you're manipulating the metal around this sort of like a small post and the hammers doing all the work. So you're not having to hand hammer like a like a blacksmith would. Sure. And that was pretty vital to me because, you know, I've, as you know, carving is hard enough on your arms and adding that element in there was just it wasn't going to happen. I just I wasn't going to swing a hammer. Uh, I would be trashing my my arms for my primary medium, which is carving. And yeah. so um, that's one thing that I still have to replace. Like I said, I, I have the frame. I just need to buy the the hammers themselves. Uh, a slip roll, which is uh, is puts a contour in, in metal. I, I didn't replace that piece of equipment. And then I, I want to have like a, a legit like blacksmithing anvil, uh, which I haven't replaced yet either. So those are those are the primary things. I have a plasma table, and welders, and you know uh, enough things that I can you know fabricate base plates. I I'll tell you a little story because this is this is kind of why I I feel like I mean it's not the sole reason, but it's one reason why I want to incorporate metal and wood together is I want to earn a place um, inside somebody's home. And uh, a while ago, I took a, a class um, that was offered by our state uh, called Entrepreneur. And in that class, they teach business skills to artists and this and that. And our instructor was telling us this story about a, a piece of uh, farm equipment that had been on her dad's ranch um, sitting up against a tree. And it was sort of an expired piece. You know, it wasn't like a relevant piece of farm equipment anymore because of modern technology. And it sat there with grass and weeds growing around it. And, uh, and so she's, she's very involved in the art community. Well, she wanted to put this thing in sort of a museum. And, and so she goes on to tell this story. I'm going to kind of shorten it just for the sake of the podcast. But the reality of it is, is that this old piece of equipment that was, you know, nearly forgotten, with weeds and rust and everything else was placed in a museum and on a pedestal and sort of somewhat cleaned up and a story attached to it. And suddenly that piece was sort of elevated to, uh, you know, like more respected, more revered because of its historical value and, um, and because of the fact of sort of where it was placed. And so when I think about my artwork, you know, I, I think about a lot the story that I tell uh, behind a piece or how it's displayed and even small things about the way that you, um, you know, display a piece can can set it apart and make someone want to, to revere it and respect it. And so, you know, I could take a, say, a chainsaw carved bear and I could just sell the bear straight up Um with not a lot of care and not a lot of storytelling, like, like it's just another piece and someone's going to be like, okay, they may even try to talk you down or something like that. And it doesn't happen to me often, but you know, it, it's possible. Mm-hmm. And then I could take another piece and I could really spend the time to do, I mean, just adding another element, adding, putting it on a pedestal or putting it on a metal plate that sort of just says I'm different and I deserve a better place. I deserve you know, more, more respect. And so that's kind of one of the things that I've been working towards. I, I really like to do um, busts of, of animals. So I'll have like a, a metal plate and then a wood base. 
and then you'll have the sculpture. And there's times where I've actually, you know, uh, done a metal mount. So it almost looks like the, the bust is, is sort of floating. It's just because it has the strength of the metal. So I like, I like using metal because there's, there's some things that you can do with metal. You can't do with wood. You know, you can have a very dainty, very delicate kind of, um, feature in metal that can support something that's larger. Um, and it just, it brings a lot of balance to the eye. And, and again, it gives, it gives it a more, more of a revered space in someone's home rather than, you know, out in the yard or on the front porch or wherever it might be. So, uh, right now I'm working on a, on a barn owl and I've had the owl done for a while, but, uh, it's going to get uh, a metal base plate on the bottom with metal grass that goes up the post. And so uh, there is actually something to the appeal of, of, of wood and metal together. That's also really, um, really interesting. So it's not just about the function, but about the balance of materials. Cool. That's a, that's a really like in-depth, interesting way to look at it. And I, I see, I see the point in that. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's times where, um, g- getting back to the whole, like, you know, uh, uh, onsite carving and bring it back to the studio. There are times where someone doesn't want to put the sculpture back onto, uh, the stump that it came from. And we've actually fabricated base plates and, um, done as little as like a paver installation. So you can put them down on pavers. Uh, so you have the base metal base plate, and I have these uh, oblong kind of holes that are um, uh, drilled in the corner, not drilled. Yeah, they're, well, they're plasma cut out of the corners of the plate. And then you can drive um, large uh, concrete um, form spikes. So they're like, a, think of like a, you know, you know like a horseshoe um, post, you know, okay. something like that. So it's about a, like three quarter to one inch in diameter. And then you pound those in an angle and those um, hold the plate down. So that's, that's kind of like a, you know, someone doesn't want to go with the full on, you know, concrete pad. Um, Mm -hmm. You can just put pavers down and then pound those posts in. But anyway, it's a way to, to add stability to a sculpture. And again, you know, having the plate allows them to put that wherever they want. And then I've probably had about five people that move and they want to take a sculpture with them. And so that of course makes it very easy of, taken one that was screwed to a stump and then put a base plate on it and and we moved it to their new location at a new house so uh, it it really opens up a lot of possibilities yeah cool okay so where do you find your inspiration like when you're making pieces that you you want to make yeah um it i gotta tell you like i i'm like i'm i'm like a squirrel you know, I, I, that's probably like a lot of artists, but I'm just, I'm, I have to be really careful because I'm so distracted by, by things. I just, uh, I don't know. I have an eye for, for shapes and textures. And, um, you know, when it comes to animals and things like that, I, I follow a lot of, um, photographers, uh, I follow, uh, rehabilitation centers. I follow, um, uh, Raptor uh, facilities and falconers. Um, I, I just try to look on the peripheral of, of just like, you know, you, you know, whatever, like instead of just looking at Pinterest or, uh, um, Instagram, I, I do use those, but, uh, I, I want to kind of want to see things that aren't like, I guess what I'm saying is, is like when you look at Pinterest or you look at, um, any photography, you're always getting the picture that that everybody wants to see um, the animal's best angle. But, you know, which might be fine if you're a, you know, if you're a 2D artist or doing a relief sculpture where you're only worried about one dimension. But, you know, as a sculptor of 3D, you have to kind of you have to build and form something three dimensionally. You have to know what something looks like all the way around. And so uh, I have very, very extensive um, albums of photos that I've collected that are, you know, from odd places. I've even actually taken, um, videos and done like a screen recording of the video so that I can go back and find the frame that I 
feel like is, is opposed. Like if I'm, you know, like these rehab centers have bears that are, you know, they're playing in a pen. And, you know, if you, if you're able to take those, the movement frame by frame, you'll be able to look at it and, and see how the animal's moving, um, according to what you want. And sometimes you have to build your own profile in, in your mind as to, um, I guess what I'm trying to say is you have to take a series of images to build um, what something might look like from from a 360 degree view. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. Because sometimes I've even, like I just started carving some ducks mm-hmm. and I had so many different views and then you get to one point and you're like, I have no idea what this part of the wing looks like. I got to go yeah. find another view. <laughs> yeah. And so if you're looking at, you know, photographer's work, it's, it's all about, you know, you, you always see the eye and you rarely see those, those weird angles and shots. But when you follow uh, like uh, raptor centers and, you know, rehabilitation and falconers, sometimes you and with video being so prevalent now, a lot of times you'll end up um, getting a glimpse, but, but you have to pay attention because it's not, it's not super obvious. So like you have to take a video and you're like, Oh, somebody walked around this animal and Oh, that's the, that's the view that I need to complete my understanding of the anatomy of this pose. Cause anatomy is, is so many things. It's, anatomy from a bone structure but it's anatomy from muscle structure and then with birds and and even animals with fur it's anatomy from their their skin their feathers their fur whatever it is and and so when you when you think about all those different elements you have to build that profile and sometimes that takes a long time so if you're going to do something uh, you have an idea to do a sculpture, it might take you three to six months to really grab all the references that you might need. So my whole concept is, is that when I have different animals in my phone, um, I have albums that are, um, you know, like I don't, wouldn't have just a single album of say eagles. I'd have eagles in flight, eagles perched, and then eagle uh, close-up stuff like eagle eyes and faces, talons, all of those elements have their own album so that when it comes time for me to um, need that reference that I don't have to spend a lot of time, which again goes back to understanding time. So, I mean, gosh, if I were to say one thing to, you know, a, a new or a seasoned carver is to really look at your workflow and the things that you spend time on and spend time on things that you can do that will save you time over a period of years, because uh, if you're in it for the long haul, you want to be able to, you know, make the work that you're doing today serve you well into the future. Yeah. Yeah. I like that idea of keeping albums. Cause I, I also have albums in my phone of certain, certain animals. And then when I have to carve them again, like you said, I don't have to redo all that research. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so my next question is a lot lighter. <laughs> I saw I saw on social media that you asked your followers what pants hold up best, and I was wondering what the consensus was or if you figured it out. Yeah, it was it was interesting. Um, I I think a lot of people were commenting on. Um, oh gosh, I should have I should have looked it up. I'm, I'm blanking on it now. Um, I saw a lot of them said. Duluth Trading Company fire hose pants. Yeah, a lot of people did, and I actually never tried those. Um, I, I I tried um, a pair of pants that I I really liked that was made by um, Dickies, and everything I liked about them except for the fact that they had this seam um, that wrapped around the back of my calf, and the seam just hit me wrong and I could just feel it all day long. And I thought, okay, like maybe it's just cause it's new. And I started um, wearing them and thinking that they would soften and I just could not get over it. And in fact, um, it ended up having the, the, the front <laughs> see the crotch area kind of wear out, which is a common wear for, for a lot of pants. Yeah. And so uh, they actually sent me a brand new pair and it's still sitting you know, in my closet because I, I just, I can't stand the way that feels on my calf. 
Yeah. Uh, and it's, I think a lot of pant companies um, are, are sort of going to that sort of skinny jean sort of thing where it's very, the, the pant leg itself is very tapered. Yeah. And I don't, I don't like that at all. So my new, my new semi-favorite, and I say semi-favorite because they're extremely comfortable, but uh, as Noble Outfitters, and they, they have a, a very stretch cotton. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So it, it moves with your body. You know, I like the, the new higher tech sort of stretch fabrics. But one of the things that drives me crazy is uh, they, the cell phone holder on the pant leg is too small for my phone and it's too far down um, on my leg. So uh, ironically, they have a little bit bigger pocket on the opposite side. Uh, but again, my, my problem with that is twofold. It's your, your phone is just heavy enough to be sort of banging or clapping against the side of your knee. Oh yeah. And, um, and it's just, and it's like, well, I'm right-handed and I would say that 90% of the people out there are also right-handed. So now I've got to take my right hand and reach across my body, or I've got to transfer it from my left hand to my right hand. It's just not as, as fluid, you know? Yeah. But as far as comfort goes, it's my go-to. And I, I, I wanted to try to pick a pant too that was reasonably priced. And it's right in that $30, $35 range versus like $60 to $75 with, right. uh, you know, a lot of the Duluth stuff is, is very expensive. So I, I'll eventually try those out. I just, um, you know, I didn't have anybody sending me pants for me to try. Uh, but, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a bit of an inventor um, in... I think of things uh, I've made all kinds of jigs and different stuff that I fabricate. And uh, I would love to have somebody that would want to, you know, design a pant. I mean, that would just be so cool because uh, I, I just, I don't know. I just have a, a thing for knowing, you know, what, what is important. It drives me crazy to think that somebody in a large company didn't think about some of the things that, uh, you know, a person, and, and, and I realize I'm a sculptor and it might be a, uh, you know, a small market, but the same things that I want in a pant are going to be the same things that anybody else working on a ranch or doing construction are, are going to want. Right. They just look like huge oversights to me. And I think, you know, I could help you with that. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Start, start working yeah. for companies. Like, just advise them. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, it's crazy. I, I see it all the time with tools and everything. Like, um, there's a tool out there that I had when I had, uh, before the fire, what called, is it the Merlin, the, the Noxon, the little, uh, sanding, it looks like a die grinder, but it's got a right hand angle to a little okay. mini. I don't know what it's called specifically, but it drove me crazy. Cause whenever I had it in my hand that the power switch was just right where you naturally want to hold it. And you're constantly turning the tool on and off. Yep. And, uh, I have one like that. It's a, mine's a Proxon. The power. That's it. You hit yep. it all the time. Yep. That's it. Yeah. And I'm thinking, how, how did that, how did that? Well, first of all, like if that was part of like prototype one, Oh, okay. Yeah. That doesn't make sense. Let's, let's improve that. But that tool has been relatively unchanged for years. Right. You know, so I don't, I don't really understand. I know that the cost of, of changing designs is expensive, but ultimately, you know, if you're going to reach the masses with your tools, you, you have to demonstrate that you're going to make the improvements to, to, you know, to make your tool the top of the line. Right. You know, I think MAMP has really set out to, to kind of do that too. They, they are on the expensive side, but they seem to want to build a really good product. Yeah. Yeah. It does seem that way. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What is your, what is your favorite way to carve? Like, do you go to competitions? Um, is your favorite doing like one of a kind things or do you like doing more like inventory or repeated pieces? What do you like to do the most? Um, I, I definitely like to do one of kind pieces. Um, I've never competed. In fact, uh, this year is my, my first competition is going to be in carve Montana. Oh, <laughs> cool. So, yeah. So I, you know, my, my wife's always struggled with her health and she has a uh, chronic migraines and, and kidney stones. And so it, it's another reason why we've sort of established the, you know, the business to be more studio based. 
because we've got three kids and it's just difficult to be on the road with them and, and have all the things that, uh, you know, she needs to have in, in terms of, you know, well, sometimes I feel like a single dad when, you know, when she's down, uh, mm-hmm. just, just cause I got all my, my normal workload. And then when she's down, I've got all the stuff to deal with with the kids. So, uh, I've got a 19 year old, uh, a 17 year old and an 11 year old, my 11 year old's my daughter and I've got two older boys. So they're, they're definitely really helpful and they're, you know, they know the routine. And so that helps, um, as they get older, it's, it's definitely less work, but, uh, that's, it's one of the reasons why we, we haven't really done much competing, um, much like none. Um, most of the work that I do is, uh, is one of a kind. I, I, I do a, a ton of bears. I don't know. People are just crazy about bears here. I, I don't know if it has to do with the fact that a lot of we're, we have a lot of Californians moving to our area and I don't know, you know, it may, maybe it's part of that ideal, that dream is I'm going to move to the mountains and the woods and I'm going to have a carved bear. Maybe that's just one of their boxes they need to check off, but right. um, it's, I, I don't enjoy it any less every time I do them. I really do enjoy doing, doing bears. Um, but I also like to, you know, expand my, I really want to put a little larger focus into doing figurative pieces, um, kind of moving forward. I'm, but uh, we'll see how that goes. It's just, uh, but yeah, I, I like doing one of, one of a kind over over anything else. Uh, it's it's evolved over the years, you know. I think just like anybody, when you first get started, it isn't even really about what you're carving. It's about getting the experience, you know. And you have to put your time in in order to really understand the capability of the tools that you're using, um, the the responsiveness they are to different species of wood, and you know, the list can go on and on, but you know, when I first started out, uh, I, my very first market was a, a farmer's market. Uh, that's where I sold and got to know a few people. Um, and so it was markets and I think I set up a, a trailer and I did some roadside carving and all of this sort of, you know, everything it was sort of combined. So it more or less was just adding different elements and uh, I did wholesale, so I would carve things. Uh, I, we used to carve a lot of these trees uh, out of cedar, and I would sell those wholesale to uh, rustic furnishing stores and things like that. Um, and then a little bit of consignment. And then uh, we added doing you know some art shows, trying again to be more on the art, the, the, the art side of things rather than because again, if I sell a piece on the side of the road or at a fair, it's going to have a whole different um, reception uh, than than me um, going to an art show. And so, you know, for instance, it, it, well, you know, I first of all, I don't like to sell my art and make it at the same time, which is a little contrary to most uh, carvers' philosophies, because there is that entertainment aspect of, of seeing something made. But I've found that if somebody's going to pay a little bit more for a piece uh, that's displayed properly, that's clean, and that comes with a conversation and a body, and you can have the time to tell the story and have the time to interact with people, that in the long run, that's um, a model that you know appeals to me more. And so that's kind of what we've done. And, and we've even tapered back uh, on the shows. So um, now my... My presence is known by uh, social media and um, the few art shoes that we do uh, a year. Okay, cool. Well, that's yeah. exciting. And I'm, I'm excited because I'm going to Montana too. Yeah, that's so awesome. We'll to, yeah, we'll congratulations. Yeah, Thank for sure. You. Yeah, we're only, uh, we're only like uh, a two and a half, maybe three hours away from, from uh, Libby. So, uh, it's, it's not a very far drive for me and, um, yeah, I'm excited. I'm also really nervous. I'm not, a, am not, I'm not fast by any means. And I know that some incredible carvers are going to be there and, you know, uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm a little nervous about the time element because it is you know, a struggle a- just to balance, um, like detail and what you know you can do with, with mm-hmm. the time limit. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Sometimes you get done and you're like, oh, 
I could have done so much better if I just had a little bit more time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to try to give some thought to, to what I'm going to sculpt. I, you know, I have a, I have a couple ideas in mind and what I think I want to do. I'm not sure I can pull off in that time frame. So right. I, I may, I may give it a go, um, before the competition to see if I can even remotely get close. Um, I've also started to, uh, I, I'm, I may be trying to improve some of my saw lineup to help me with speed too a little bit. I've, I've got a pretty, I've got a, a MS 661, um, and a, a 461. Um, those are, are two. One of the 461 is, is a popular saw for kind of doing modifications on in in terms of kind of souping it up. And so I may be trying to get a little bit of more power out of that guy to help me, you know, do some early blocking. Yeah. There's a lot that I could learn from a lot of those guys that, you know, I, I know that having not really attended any of the competitions, I've only actually been to two, um, years ago, um, over in Western Washington, couldn't even really remember to tell you which show it was, but I, when I first got started, I went over and just walked through one. And then, uh, last year we went to the Libby event just to, to walk through that and see and meet a couple people. So, uh, that's, that's the only two competitions I've ever even like, uh, been present at and not okay. even com- competing. So, you know, I have a, a very, shallow understanding of the way things operate and so it'll be interesting coming in i i actually ended up building a uh, a mobile version of my uh carving carriage uh so i'm going to bring that with me and it's basically like the the carriage that i have that's on my uh my uh, barn door track i i put one on wheels so i've got a compressor and generator uh and then all of my tools um on one sort of like mobile toolbox, if you will. Oh, cool. That's so cool. that'll be kind of, well, you know, I'm just so used to working from that platform yeah. um, that I just felt like I would save myself a little bit of time by just having everything organized. And, and I also just really like to, to fabricate and build things that kind of help me in my workflow. Right. And uh, it happens to also store uh, six saws in that same toolbox. And so um, it will, you know, it, it serves a purpose here at the studio as well. So I, it's kind of like my my overflow and my storage of saws inside the shop. Um, and uh, yeah, it was fun to build. My wife's like, I think you spent a little bit too much time on that. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah. Well, it'll be exciting. Yeah. Yeah, So is, sure. there, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you want to talk about? You know, I don't, I don't know. Um, I, I just, uh, I guess if I were to talk about, you know, anything that might help somebody, it would be to really just, you know, spend the time to, to think about their workflow. There's, there's so many things, uh, that are important if your, if your mindset is to, you know, become a full-time carver. I think maybe one of the most important things to think about and, and could potentially be one of the most difficult decisions to make is, is your location. Like if, because my location has a lot to do with my success and, um, you know, I'm in a good area to sell the kind of art that I'm making. And so when you combine being in a good area and then you, you know, sort of like extrapolate that out over uh, 20 years, then, you know, that's the reason why I'm able to make the work that I am from my home. And so if you find, find a good area that you think you can stay invested in and do the right things over and over again, and you're going to end up having, you know, a lot of repeat business and almost all of my, uh, people that call me are, are like referred, referred by, um, tree companies. And, you know, I guess I, I could give out away my little secret there too, is, um, with tree companies, I don't, I don't advertise this because I don't want it to seem like something that I do in exchange for it. But, uh, whenever a tree company gives me a referral and it pans out to be a legitimate job, um, I always send them out to a really nice meal. And so that's a way for me to say thank you. Um, but it's not like something that, 
Um, I don't want to go around advertising like, oh, if you do this, you get this, because it just seems like it cheapens it. I, right. I want to say thank you. I want to build long-term relationships. And I felt like that's the easiest way for me to stay top of mind with uh, tree companies. And, you know, so somebody sees a tree and it's, you know, a decent size and in a cool location. They're like, hey, have you ever thought about carving that? Like, oh my gosh, like, no, I haven't. Well, you might look, take a look at Jeff May's work or something like that. And, um, you know, I get referrals like that uh, fairly consistently. Uh, and so, you know, I think if you, if you start building those relationships and that doesn't go like a hundred percent just towards tree people either, that, that can be anybody that sends you work. If you thank them with a meal, there's something about food that makes, um, I don't know, you know, we just, we all eat three times a day and we all love to, to eat out. So it's a great way to say thank you for a referral. So that's been one of the things that we've tried to implement, um, on top of, you know, having a good location, but, uh, there's, there's all kinds of things. Um, website, super important. Uh, my portfolio online, I spend a lot of time photographing my pieces and making sure, in fact, um, most of the pieces that I install end up being photographed here at the studio first in, and, and, sometimes maybe 50% of the time, I never even get a picture that I want to put on the website on, on the location, because when I'm there, it might be bad weather, it might be bad lighting. Um, I, I really, most of the time I'm going, I'm doing my installs by myself. And so I want to be able to spend you know time with a client and build the relationship. Um, just yesterday I was uh, delivering a, a sculpture and I was there for like an hour after the whole, you know, delivery was done yeah. just shooting the breeze. And, you know, in the end he goes, dude, give me like a fistful of your cards because I want to share, you know, your work with people. And so, you know, that's, it, it does, it takes, when you're doing commission work, it takes time. But if you're in it for the long haul, I personally think that it's, it's worth it to spend that, that extra time. I'd rather do that than to, to, than to like put out like, um, you know, I don't know, whatever, like, 20 bears and send them wholesale to some, you know, vendor where you don't know where the bears go. You don't know who's buying them. They don't even know who the artist is half the time. And, right. um, and so that work that you're doing isn't coming back to you. It's not, you know, cause they don't have any connection to you. Yeah. And, and so sense. when you think of that again, in, in the long term, if you're going to do this for 20 plus years, you want the work that you're doing today to come back to you. You know, you want the time that you spent doing something that's going to save you time to save you additional time. So that kind of thinking, I think, might just be, you know, really valuable, <clears throat> excuse me, really valuable to explore because it, they're just kind of repeated events, if you you know what I mean? Right. Yeah, that makes and, sense. And half the time you can you can count on them. I mean, that for sure. Um. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't honestly know. I know a, a fair amount of people use, you know, social media. Um, I don't really use my social media in any like unique way. I don't, I don't think at least. Um, I'd like to try my best to get out um, a post per week. And then I basically just use uh, like Instagram to dual post to Facebook. I found that a lot of my, uh, my, my buyers are on Facebook. Um, Instagram's a little bit younger crowd and I have way more followers on Facebook, I mean, on Instagram than I do, uh, Facebook, but I think I have more buyers on, on Facebook. Yeah, it's I really think interesting. The same way. Yeah. yeah. So, um, I mean, and, and it's hard to say how that will, will flip because you, you constantly have people. I find that most of the people who are buying from me are, um, retired. So that means that they're, you know, 60 or over. Uh, I would say that's a majority of my buyers. You know, they've they've gotten over the the you know, providing for their family and their kids and that kind of thing. And they, uh, and especially in our area, because I think you know people move here with money from somewhere else, and so now uh, they're they're just you know it's about kind of doing things for their for, their, for themselves. So sure. yeah, yeah. Gosh, I can't really think about too much things, but you know, um, I, I know a lot of people may 
you know, no, not very many people can afford to set up a, sh a studio or a shop like I have. And I, and I get that. Um, but you can always, um, miniaturize certain aspects that will help you with your workflow. And I would just say that if you make your list of the things that will save time and you look at how you might be able to sort of implement the same concepts just on a smaller scale, I think that anything that you do investing into yourself and your, and your art business is going to pay dividends over time because you have increased productivity. You have increased, um, uh, joy while you're working uh and you know we we've always set everything up from our our home so like my my studio is on our property uh, we don't have to worry about issues of noise or or going to a particular location and uh, clients that stop by the studio are basically stopping by the studio because they've made an appointment so i don't have drop-ins and things to you know mess with my schedule or my productivity i always know when someone's coming yeah that's that's cool yeah well it's all really good advice yeah well you know hopefully it'll be valuable for for someone there's um i i actually started um playing around with the idea of doing some some teaching i've got uh four students if you will uh that i've gleaned off of the carving i went and reached out to the admin of the chainsaw carvers uh, facebook page and he's like yeah man go for it and uh, so i reached out to like four people and or, or actually i threw it out there and four people reach reach back out to me and uh we're doing like a zoom thing once a week and i i really i'm doing it for free for them because i want to just evaluate my myself and my desire to teach uh because i as much as i've have all this carving experience teaching is like a whole nother thing and and i i had never really thought about that so much and so the, the exchange for them doing uh participating in the class for free is that they sort of put up with some of the nuances of of me being a new teacher and trying to develop things that are meaningful so um you know it can be simple as stuff like technology on zoom like was this you know, me showing this camera angle, was that valuable? Did you learn something? Like, I, I want to know, like, are people really getting decent value out of learning things online? Is that a viable teaching method? That's kind of what I'm thinking. And so I wouldn't want to make somebody pay for something like that. And it'd be super clunky all the way through, you know? And so, sure. um, at the end of this four week period, um, I'll just be kind of evaluating some of the things. So I'll put together like a PDF of some things that I feel like are is valuable. And then we have conversations. And of course, I make myself available to them for uh, like, you know, showing me pictures of their work and getting feedback and tips and tricks and that kind of stuff. In the end, it might be something that ends up being more like a consulting thing. I, I think that model might be more doable for me to maintain my own workflow and still, you know, providing some value for those who want to reach out and do that or, or even, um, like a personal workshop or something like that. Who knows, but I'm playing around with it. Okay. That's cool. Yeah. 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 It's been fun. Good. Well, Jeff, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on so people can learn from you and hear from someone else. That's really cool. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you having me on Molly. It's an honor. Appreciate it for listening to this episode of the Chainsaw Carving Podcast. If you like the podcast, be sure to give us a review, like it, and or share it with other carvers so they too have the opportunity to learn from carvers from all over the world.